Hey guys and gals, just wanted to give you a quick update on what's going on in the Money Media Network for this week. Tuesday morning, this will be right before my show is dropped, we have the new JK Plus One with Tom Amos as his guest. Should be a load of fun. Wednesday morning, the Woodbine Preview, their Woodbine Meet starts this Saturday. It's going to be Pete and Ron Gierkink of the DRF going over the racing from Woodbine. And then we also have the Stronic Five sequence back this Friday. The Wednesday night show will have Pete and JK going over the sequence. Now let's get started with this week's Redboard Rewind. Welcome to episode 36 of Redboard Rewind. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. Today my special guest comes back to chat again. It's TVG's own Megan Devine. We go over two races from last Saturday at Santanina and a race from the Sunday's late pick five at Churchill. Some angles we cover are how many races is too many to lose at a certain class level, and how deep digging in the condition book can give you a real class edge in class handicapping. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story in this cycle. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. It ain't good for me. What we do this for? We go back and forth. Won't do this no And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Megan Devine. Megan, how are you doing today? Hey, I am doing very well. Thank you, uh, Spencer. Just enjoying California sunshine. Happy you've got some racing going on and uh, hoping the world gets back to normal soon. It's been just the craziest time now. I have a couple of friends out in Minnesota, so I've been watching that with uh, a lot of stuff going on. But let's try not to get too political here. I know you've been on some uh, some recent live streams and podcasts, uh, if you want to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I have. So, um, you know, right now, well, as I always am, I'm a, a freelance analyst. So I obviously my, my main job usually is to be on TVG. Um, but with that, scaling down production um, with all the limitations over the past few months. I've had a lot of free time on my hands, so I figured instead of taking up knitting, I should continue to sharpen my <laughs> handicapping. And um, so I have done a couple of things. I mean, the, the Barstool guys, Blackjack Fletcher and Paul LaDuca, uh, were kind enough, and Mark DiGiulio, to, to have me on the uh, broadcast a couple times that they do on Periscope. And I got to tell you, it is a lot of fun. Our first one was Arkansas Derby Day. Um, so we all dressed up a little bit in our houses, which was kind of nice, and uh, talked about the races. But it, it's a neat concept. It's a lot like what the kids are doing these days. I say that as a millennial still, but um, with Twitch and everything, you know, kind of watching people watching racing or, or handicapping or whatever. So it's really fun to be on. It's a very laid back atmosphere, so much so that I did the last two live streams while I was sitting outside in my backyard tanning. So it's uh, it's kind of nice to be able to have a drink, sit in my baby suit in my backyard, but then still talk about the ponies too. A hundred percent with that. It's it's anything with Blackjack and Paul involved. It's always going to be a blast for sure. And then I also know you're a part of the horse racing happy hour as well. Yeah. So that, I mean, 
kind of along the same lines, right? I feel like, uh, and I think your show does a good job at that too. A lot of what our industry, I think, really needs and has needed over the past couple of years is just a, a friendly, approachable set of programs um, where people won't feel so intimidated, but yet you can still inform the horse player that already exists. And and I think that there's some shows that are starting to pop up like that. And the horse racing happy hour is one of those. I was on a couple of times with um, Mark and Louis the two guys that host it out of Louisville and I just had so much fun on the podcast it truly was what the title says it it was like a couple of great friends sitting around the bar talking about horses and just having fun and I thought this is something I'd really like to be involved with so I am gonna um, jump on as a regular um, co-host with them and we did our first show last week it was really fun we're gonna be doing a lot more and, and promoting it more so it's in its infancy and uh, I'm really excited to, to help it grow. So I encourage you guys to, to head over there and, and follow them on. We've got an Instagram, a Twitter. Uh, we're, we're most popular. And then we're, we're building a Facebook page as well. But uh, lots to look forward to with that. So I've, I've really enjoyed it. And then I continue to work on stuff for my company, Vidhorse, which is a digital media marketing agency. So we do photography, videography services. Most of the video stuff you see for my racehorse is, is mine. So um, I've been keeping busy with that as well. It's so funny when the whole epidemic started, I never, I couldn't believe it. I was like every single week there's going to be new live streams and new groups popping up that I'd never even heard of before. And it's just been nice to get that breath of fresh air and new ideas because that's what you want in the business. You always want to see a new handicapper or a new idea or show for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's excellent too that we're able to connect with each other so much because usually it is very segmented or you know, I, I don't get to talk to everybody when I'm on TVG2, but being on some of these live streams, you know, I'm able to to talk and, and co-host with people that I otherwise might not have had the chance to work with. And I think that um, that collaboration has, has been, like you said, really refreshing. Now, obviously not having been on uh, TVG lately, have you noticed anything different, like with your handicapping? Do you feel like you've kind of taken a step back and kind of redone your process or are you still kind of, you know, same old handicapper as you were a couple months ago? Uh, I think I am still the same old. I don't know. <laughs> Can a tiger change its stripes? But I'll have to ask the Tiger King. But um, no, I, I think I'm doing a lot of the same. The one thing I, I guess I'm missing is um, is being at the track itself and, you know, be able to see the horses up close. I still do a little bit of riding myself just because I've, it's in my blood. I've been doing it since I was a kid. So, um, But a lot of my visual handicapping um, comes from seeing the horses up close and personal. And, and so I definitely miss that part of it and uh, i'm looking to get back to that soon but i have some things like xptv and obviously when they do show the post parades and paddock um, that's always helpful too is there has there been something like from the bar stool guys or the happy hour have you learned something that you weren't 100 percent that you didn't do as well and now you kind of have a better idea of it from learning from these other people um you know i i think some of the most interesting things i've learned from barstool and you know there as you know as a horse player there are two different things that that go into being successful um and that is handicapping which i I don't think i've changed too much but it's also strategy and betting Mm -hmm. and i think we all have our go-tos you know i mean i I love a pick four i love a pick five i love a straight win bed and uh, i love an exacta as well those are are, are kind of usually the ones that i gravitate towards but um and an exacta with two to three horses but um you know, I have noticed just working with some other people, like what, what bets they gradu- uh, gravitate pardon me, towards. And, and I think the strategy in betting is something that I've really been interested in figuring out, okay, well, what does this guy usually go to? You know, what is his thinking here? Because you could be the best handicapper in the world, but if you don't bet that race right, you're not going to make any money. So obviously, other than the pick four, pick five, and 
others like that. Has there been someone on Barstool who maybe is like a pick three player that you're just like you're interested or surprised to how he has his betting strategy? Or is it mostly the pick four and pick five with those guys still? You know, no, it is single race bets. Uh, the, the one problem I think, I think all of us would say is that when we're on there, it's similar to, you know, if you've ever hung out with a big group around the track. And, Absolutely. Uh, and at a table where you're betting that track and you're betting the other ones too, you start betting races that you maybe have no business betting. <laughs> You know, I think I think it's kind of an experiment, but it's all for fun. You know, we are just playing. I mean, there's money on the line. Don't get me wrong, but um, but I think uh, maybe we've indulged a little too much. I don't know that any one of us has walked away with a, a whole lot of profit because we end up spending it on some other tracks that we didn't really handicap as much. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but uh, it's been a lot of fun regardless. I feel like that's always the hardest thing. I, I realize that when I'm playing at home, I probably am making more, and when I'm at Saratoga with a couple of the boys, it's more of you know oh we're three rounds in and i shouldn't even be playing this fourth race because i barely handicapped it and oh i put a 20 dollar <laughs> win bet out and i lost what a surprise yeah 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 exactly like oh i'll hunt play this it's totally fine i mean it's no different than sitting down in a casino and playing a blackjack table like i mean you're gonna if you lose in the first couple of hands you're probably gonna put some more money in the pot just so that you can sit there and play you got to get your kicks right so it's a lot of the same <laughs> Absolutely, 100% with that. So I know last time, I don't know if we, if we talked much about your process, but I had an idea, like, talking about some of your favorite angles from this past weekend that came up and that you also like to wager on. Well, I definitely think, as you know, I think we talked about this last time, um, Santa Anita is always great for me because I have access to XBTV. And, mm-hmm. and watching workouts, watching physicals, horses both in, in race replays which obviously is available everywhere but also at XBTV it really helps me to understand where the horse is at physically where their mind is at especially if they're coming back off of layoffs which has been very important in this time especially in California as racing was paused for quite a while you know we have horses that may have been peaking right when racing got shut down and, and you know have had to kind of carry that fitness or, or maybe didn't and then came back so I think watching them work out has been extremely important for me because we have a great time, but it's all about how you do it. Um, and I, I know a lot of people out there would agree with that. So uh, that's been very helpful for me at Santa Anita and uh, at Churchill. I don't know. I have been very, um, or other tracks rather, I, did, I just always focus on class, but that's no different class and, and where they've been racing. What, how does that shape up to maybe this field at various tracks? Um, that's been really important for me as well. So those are just kind of, but I, I guess I always rely on those, um, pandemic or not. <laughs> I know uh, Jonathan Kinchin over the weekend on the uh, FS2 coverage said that because of all the racing that happened at Oaklawn and them being like one of the only games in town, the racing was much tougher. So he's giving an upgrade class-wise to a lot of horses coming from Oaklawn, and I tend to agree with him. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, racing was certainly limited, right? You have yeah. to uh, take that into account. I think the racing has overall gotten better. Um, at Oakland, but field sizes were huge. I mean, um, it's always a competitive meet. It has been in the past couple of years as many trainers, you know, have started to have strings there that, that didn't, I wintered in for a whole meet, uh, at Oakland in 2016. And, uh, it was a lot different than the makeup of the fields and the different trainers that were there as compared to what it is now. So it's grown significantly. I mean, the track itself even, uh, in just those four years. So it's, it's definitely gotten to a level that is really, really respectable. So I, I would absolutely agree with that. 
And now with a bunch of other tracks coming along, are you super excited to play any specific track coming up, like Belmont starting, Woodbine is coming up, anything you're super excited to get ready for? Yeah, you know, I actually do really well at Woodbine. Um, I love covering their racing on TVG2 uh, when I usually do, so that has always been exciting for me. Uh, I loved going there last year as well. It's an absolutely beautiful facility, and I, I like handicapping those races, especially the turf races. I really feel like that's where I excel. Um, a lot of the time. So they offer some really good fields for that. I, I wish Arlington were back in business. Um, I enjoy handicapping that track and I like Canterbury as well. So those are always favorites of mine during this time of year. And, and obviously I'm a New York girl, I'm a New York bred. So uh, <laughs> it's always nice to see them starting back up as well. Me being part of the bet squad, I am really excited for Belmont to get back up and going, hoping that we hear good news on Saratoga coming soon. What do you say, Megan, we get started with these three races? Race number five from Saturday at Santa Anita was a maiden special weight state bred going five and a half on the turf. What did you kind of like in this race? You know, this was a really interesting race. On the uh, horse racing happy hour, I wanted to do a segment for a long time uh, called Megan's Maidens because I feel like I do kind of excel in these spots. And uh, unfortunately... My maiden may not have gotten the job done, but I was really interested in zero down. I mean, you mentioned the conditions of this race. It is a maiden special weight for the Calibre. It's five and a half furlongs on the turf. So you look at a horse like the nine, who was 10 to one in the morning line. Blinkers were going back on for this one. First time gelding. But more importantly, this horse stopped racing in March when everything kind of hit the fan and, and went a mile on the turf last time. I just thought that was much too far. Getting back to the shorter distance, the best two races of his career were when he sprinted on the turf course. Uh, other than that, he went long on the turf and then short on the dirt, and I thought his workouts were improving. He's a horse that I, I definitely thought you know could be a good one at a price, at least to include in the top three. And then I actually really liked the three Malachi Moxie um, because he had been working with a horse named Just Graze Me, who is a stakes, I think, I think she's a mare now, actually. Uh, and I actually thought he kept up pretty well, but... You know, coming off the layoff, you're just never sure. The time seemed to be good, right level for this horse that had faced this kind of company before and um, needed to, to, to do something different. And I actually looked at the two. You're talking about practice. I mentioned my company, Vidhorse, doing the uh, the digital media for my racehorse. And so I had been familiar with this colt for quite some time from the Peter Miller barn and knew that they had high hopes for him. It just was a matter of, you know, you, you're never quite sure um in the debut if they're going to come through. Abel Cedillo was actually listed as the rider early on, and then that ended up changing to, um, I believe, Figueroa. Uh, but seeing Abel listed on that horse at first was, I thought, a positive indication of his chances. And, and obviously, Peter Miller, very proficient. And, you know, 13% with first-time starters is respectable, uh, although not overwhelming. So I, I thought that that five-and-a-half furlong turf race was, was one. If you had a feeling about a horse, you could take a shot with them, it seems like. Uh, it might set up well for a price, at least in my opinion, I was hoping. Before we get to my picks, you said how much you love maiden races. I as well also love the handicapped maiden races. You hear so many people complain about it for lack of information, et cetera, et cetera. Right. To me, maiden races, because of a little bit less information, you kind of have less data points to hit, and it makes it easier to me to sometimes figure out what's going to go on in a race. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you have to do a little bit more digging in some ways. And, and hopefully as our sport continues to evolve, you know, maybe we will see some additional tools being put out there, more tracks doing workouts, um, whatever else. But uh, I find that that's really where I seem to do well because 
like I said, the physical or, you know, even watching replays, maidens that have started before. I think you can you can watch those replays. You can learn a lot by looking at the horses, looking at, at how they're traveling, you know, even what their ears are doing. You can tell greenness in a horse. And, and I think understanding that development process as a rider myself has always been really important. And uh, and also talking with connections, too. That's always been something that I've, I've relied heavily on um, just because of, of where I've been able to be in the industry. And, and I'm always really grateful for my relationship. So sometimes, you know, that can help when you're talking about a race or you don't have a whole lot of form to go off of. Is there a certain type of class level or a surface or a distance that you kind of feel that you need to improve on? I don't know. I, I, I say I probably do best with... Um, Maybe route races. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. My, my favorite, I haven't had any stats on that, so I actually can't say. But I will say that my favorite races to handicap that are maiden races, I, I love in the wintertime, maiden races on the turf going long are so fun. <laughs> and I think you can get some really, really great prices as well. So um, that's always, I think, conditions that I gravitate towards. But, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know. That's a good question. Now I'm going to have to start tracking that. Well, I, th- I think that's the main thing, too, is I always ask people when they say, like, you know, oh, I don't like maiden races. I'm like, well, have you tracked it for the last 30 days? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, for all you know, you could be winning, you know, thousands of dollars doing that. and You just have no idea. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> um, some horses that I liked in here, I was really excited for the first time starter count Alexi for Brian Corner. I just love the workouts. Umberto Raspoli has been someone who I just has taken to the turf course very well. When it comes to the maiden races, I try and find horses who have run close to the buyer par to see if I have to toss first-time stars or not. The number eight, Bricks, getting the upgrade to uh, Flavian Pratt, had run some good numbers under uh, Richard Baltus, so it kind of made it seem to me like the first-timers would be an underneath use for me. So I ended up making Bricks my top selection, and the number 10, Stir the Pot, was another horse I thought having that one good race on the turf that you could use underneath. What did you do from a wagering standpoint here, Megan? Um, I actually used the the nine um, zero down as a uh, as a I think a win place bet, if you will. I kind of mm-hmm. had a feeling about this one. Like I said, I, w- I was hoping the horse would be able to improve first start off the layoff, and and thought if this price stays anywhere near ten to one, and I'm able to hit on that horse, uh, let's just keep it you know plain and simple. Give myself a little bit of insurance with that place included but uh, i just went straight on the nine in here for me when i broke down uh i use a my own kind of wagering line i i use it uh from barry meadows famous books if anyone wants to check it out how he kind of does it but the real uh slim idea of it is you think of a race being run a hundred times you think of how many times a horse will win that race and in his book he has certain guides to tell you what the percentages and odds would be for a win bet based on how many times you think for me bricks was about two to one and then I had the number 10 stir the pot right around three to one as my two main contenders. So when I got down to it, stir the pot being four to one just ended up being the win bet for me. Let mm-hmm. us let us see if stir the pot can get it done for me or if the number nine zero down can get it done for Megan right now. And they're off. Bricks comes out running. So does Count Alexi, who's sprinting clear to take the lead. Endless Tail moving through along the inside. They're joined by Zero Down, who's only a half length off the pace, and Stir the Pot is also in the firing line, 3 by 4 command. Desert Swarm is racing in mid-pack, racing on the inside of Irreproachable. It's two more lengths back to Bricks, who races on the outside of Malachi Moxie. Two more to Rawhide Rollins, and you talking about practice, Trails. 
Midway on the far turn, Count Alexei, stir the pot, head and head. Zero down is fighting in between them third. They're followed by Endless Tail along the inside. Outside of him, Desert Swarm is in fifth. As the field turns for home, Bricks has clear sailing. There's an eighth to run, and Count Alexei, very strong on the front end, leads it by three. Bricks takes up the chase in the center of the course, and from the back of the field, you talking about practice. It is Count Alexei. Bricks is coming. Count Alexei. Bricks. It's going to be close. Photo finish. Bricks came right to Count Alexei at the wire. It's very close between those two. Rawhide Rollins came alive to be in a photo or a battle with you talking about practice for the show, though. And the number eight, Bricks, gets it done as the favorite, paying 480 with a 75 buyer. Thoughts on the race, Megan? Uh, I was hoping, at least for some of that race, that uh, down was going to get there, but unfortunately just disappointed. I will watch that one second start off the layoff, though. I still have some confidence. But, uh, yeah, I mean, great call on Bricks. That's uh, a horse that seems to be, you know, well in form. And, and I think certainly that race helped um, last time out on May 17th. Like I said, the, especially in California here, the break of racing has, has been really detrimental for some horses. So um, great job on Bricks, fit and ready to go. I think when you see certain stuff like the jock upgrade for people who, you know, a lot of times will say, oh, the jockey, you know, hurt the horse or helped the horse, like, Flavian Pratt might win that one for me, and I'm not one to ever really truly bash jockeys like certain others are, but then people will be complaining about it three races later, and it's like he won a race for you three back, and now it's just not good enough for you. It's kind of a sad (laughs) thing with the handicapping. Um, For zero down, you said second time off the layoff. Is there anything distant change, maybe the blinkers going back off? It will be a second time as a gelding. Um, I think it's just a matter of racing fitness. I, I felt like you know, the horse was at least in contention for some of that race. And, and to me, it looked just a matter of wasn't able to, to finish up with that. And, and I got to say, I was actually impressed by the way that you talking about practice, uh, the two horse, the maiden for Peter Miller and my race horse was, was able to improve. The horse actually completely missed the break at the start of that race and then made up some ground late. You can kind of, if you go back and you watch that, play, you can see the light bulb come on just a little bit on that horse. So he does look like one that um, I think will be competitive now that he's kind of got the hang of things. And it also just comes down as well to, to fitness for him, because what I noticed about um, some of the horses in this race and the two being one of them is you can see the propulsion that they have behind their, their hind muscles, you know, when they're going at top speed like that, all out competitive, you know, not even realizing uh, what's going on even they don't always have the, the muscling first off to, uh, to to push off that hind end and really excel. And, and I felt like he was maybe just missing a touch of that. Uh, he looks like he lost a little bit of action behind. But as he continues to progress in his fitness level, I do think that that's going to come up there. So uh, I was impressed by what I saw by the, the, from the two horse. The other first-time tartar, Count Alexi, really good race, just lost by a head, almost had the winner there at 7-2 to two as well. Second time out now, this horse ran a buyer just missing the 75, and so it was a 74. He's ran above the buyer par. This horse probably going to be slammed at the betting windows next time out. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> uh, anybody else in here from a trip standpoint that you might be interested in or just mostly looking to come back on the 9? Um, I, like I said, I think the, the two horse, likely uh if that one comes back and and is able to uh, break a little bit better last time and and has a little more fitness um i do think that this horse should be able to to improve so i'm uh excited 
to see what that horse might have. And then the nine horse, I don't know. I just, I, I've got a little bit of a feeling about that one. Maybe they, they do drop them in class a little bit more. Um, again, I was really disappointed by what happened with the, uh, the three horses just had no run about him, Malachi Moxie. So uh, I don't know what they're going to do with that Colt, but uh, I think he's got a little bit more as well. So I, I'm kind of keeping him in my, uh, in fact, he was actually, I believe kind of eased out of that race, but um, he is a horse that I will lightly keep a look uh, or a watch over, I guess, in my, in my book. Let's move on to the second race. It was still from Saturday at Santania, the sixth race, the optional 40 K and one X going seven furlongs on the dirt interesting in this race that nobody was in for a tag so it really ended up just being like a regular allowance race do you end up mm-hmm. taking notes of that sometimes like looking for like you know when they talk about three-year-old and up races as well one of my friends he'll look in he'll if there's nobody that's a three-year-old he'll just say older race and he'll make a note of that in formulator yeah that's that's a really good thing to to take note of um it is important to kind of understand what you're doing i would even say it's the same in some state bred races you know if you have horses that are in an open race, say, that are all cowbreds, you know, and, and you look, did they face cowbreds last time? Did they face mm-hmm. open? Sometimes that factor to be included in your handicapping is kind of eliminated because, well, if they're all cowbreds anyways, whether it's open or, or a restricted race, uh, that is important to note. So I would definitely agree with that. If you can make note of that in whatever program you use, formulator, your own Excel spreadsheet, whatever it is, uh, it's definitely something that can come back and help you in your handicapping. I hear a lot of people, they complain about short fields. This one is a five-horse field, and they say there's no money to be made. I can agree with that some at some point because having less horses, there's a lot more that, you know, a lot less dead money in the pool, I would say. But there's mm-hmm. I've seen plenty of instances where five-horse, four-horse fields end up with a bomb, and it's just I think people just take a lackadaisical approach to their handicapping when they see a short field. Well, the problem is, I think, especially in California, a short field, it also depends on, on what the – you know, the makeup of the race looks like. I think some of those cheaper dirt sprint races can be a little bit, uh, you know, it seems like it goes one of two ways. Either you get a bomb, like you said, and it's a horse that honestly, if we did this show a thousand times, we maybe would never be able to go back and bet. Or or it's a horse that, you know, is a six or five favorite and, and you know, there's just no beating it. So I, I find that those races are, you know, unfortunately pretty boring. And and a lot of times they don't um, lend themselves well to, you know, to getting you a good price if you're playing a sequence. I mean, even just take the pick five at Santa Anita uh, paid 1300, I believe Mm -hmm. on Saturday five at Churchill paid 130,000. So a little bit of a difference there. (laughs) there, uh, Now there was a carryover as well on, or no, that was Sunday. So yeah, you're right. Very true. With all the bombs that came in on Saturday, I should know that from doing the contest for the daily gallop. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think in the long run, it's, that's where the real big complaint comes in. But if you can, to your point, if you can bet that race just in itself, you know, just a single, mm-hmm. you know, bet on that race, um, I think you can probably make a profit. But it's where you combine it with the other races in that sequence or, or whatever else where it, it can get a little chalky and, and you don't make as much of a return on your investment. So, again, it comes into strategy. What did you end up liking in this race, Megan? You know, this was a bit tough for me because I – thought that uh, I actually thought Road Ranger um, might go be the favorite because this Billy, she's dropping from a grade two. Uh, she was never going to perform well in that grade two. It was way too big of a step up for her. And, you know, they've kind of tried a, a lot of different things with her. Um, she's a horse that is just very interesting if you go back and look at her form. And furthermore, she is a horse that confuses me. I talked about the physical and and I do really believe that that is a big uh, part of my handicapping. I think that's a big strength of mine, if I can pat myself on the back. But um, 
her, I mean, if you've never understood what a turf horse looks like when training on the dirt, as far as a high stride, you know, just a turfy action, mm-hmm. she is a perfect example of that. So when I watch her work on the dirt, I am so confused. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can't, and even her times, you know, that some of them are okay, but, but it's just, she looks inefficient on that surface. But it doesn't seem to matter. She just runs. In my opinion, she's kind of, you know, in that way, she's a little bit of an ugly dirt runner to me. But uh, mm-hmm. she seems to, to do well. And you can see that by looking at her form. So um, I, I've always thought that just the way she looks physically, she should be on the turf. But yet she keeps showing up in these dirt races. So I, I thought I might try to play against her and just go off of that and use the two rather nosy. Um, who I know, I, I believe it's five to two on the morning line, but I wasn't sure if she was going to stay there. She'd been a little inconsistent. Um, her best race was back in December of last year. Had a little bit of a, a trouble at, at the start, and um, she was coming off of a break as well. But you know, she is a horse that I think has been right there, and they they protected her in these allowance spots. And Jack Carabba does a good job with his horses, so with able to deal aboard. Uh, I thought that she was absolutely a must-use in there. So I went with the two over the one just because I was so confused on Road Rager, uh, but couldn't throw her out nonetheless. It's funny. There was a horse. I think it was last year's Triple Crown came from New York. I can't remember the horse started with a V. but Vacoma. Yeah, Vacoma with the paddle. And I'm just like, how is this horse going to go a mile and a quarter? And then not that he ended up running well, but just like I think he ran better than a lot of people thought he was going to run, even if he doesn't hit the board. But that horse blew my mind when he was winning preps. I'm like, how is this horse? He's got a full... Go ahead. I agree. I, I, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, I guess that's probably maybe a downfall of my handicapping. It's not that I'm a perfectionist when it comes to, you know, confirmation and, and movement and all that. But I do think that, you know, there's something to be said. If you are an inefficient mover, you can't possibly be as good as those that, that mechanically are built a little bit better or confirmationally. So I, I do think that that's somewhere where I probably not courses a little bit more than I should. But that's the perfect example. I'm glad you brought that up because I was so against Vacoma in a lot of spots because of the way that he traveled. And I mean, even I did track and field back in high school, and there is a they, they, there is a perfect way to run. Like they teach you certain stuff like that. I played tennis. I was varsity captain. If you don't uh-huh. have if you don't have the right form in tennis, you're not going to hit the ball properly. And just people like look at me like, why do you have to make a swing like that? Just hit the ball. And I'm like, no, no. There's a whole like backstory to it. Like people just don't understand it at all. Yeah. As a, as a previous track runner myself, I completely agree with you. And it's the same in equestrian, too. I mean, in, in jumping, there's a reason why position is so important um, when you're talking about equestrian sports. Uh, it all goes into balance, and it all goes into efficiency over jumps, and, and everything is so, you know, tactical. And, uh, and so I, I guess that carries over into my horse racing handicapping as well. I always tend to start off when I'm looking at this race with the favorite. It was a eternal endeavor at 8-5. to five. I just thought for a six-year-old mare to have only 10 starts, now seven out of 10 is nothing to uh, shake a tail at. I just didn't understand why she had so few starts and she was coming off of a layoff. And I know she had one fresh of a layoff before. I just one to me, just seemed like such a beatable favorite. I, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Because I did focus on, on the other horses, um, I, I thought that, you know, it was a little too short of a price for me on the outside. And, and it's, yeah, I couldn't find any workout notes on internal endeavor. It was just kind of one of those gut feelings. I felt mm-hmm. like she really struggled 
level before. I mean, she had, I think, three back. She had a nice performance, but it was at eight to one. She kind of stepped up against the field I wasn't so sure about. And I do look at that quite a bit. Not that I believe the horse has to be, you know, the favorite every time, but looking at the board is important uh, and understanding where did it usually fall? Is it the horse that usually has public support, is usually put in the right spots, or is it the horse that they kind of throw in every now and then and, and might jump up once or twice, but usually is kind of overmatched. And I think that's really important. And, and furthermore on the um, trip notes too, or the workout notes, I should say, I wanted to mention that uh, if you can, it's really important to try to keep your own notes for that. And, and I do on a Excel spreadsheet and a triformulator too. I think we talked about this, but mm-hmm. that's how we've worked for uh, as well. But um, this horse in particular, rather nosy, I had some notes, earlier on in this horse's career and a problem I had with her is that she was extremely keen in her workout so much so I think she was her own worst enemy but what I did notice is that as she was working coming into this race with quite a bit of uh, experience under her belt she seemed like a horse that had settled a bit and and learned how to race she was just out for a gallop she was comfortable with that whereas before she would kind of take hold of the bit and run off with her rider and to me that shows a lot of maturity and when you're talking about a race like this, the seven furlongs, you do have to conserve your speed a little bit. Uh, and there was going to be some additional, you know, front running style coming from Road Rager, potentially Pink Scadillac had some. So I think that's important. If you can continue to note the development, the progression of some of these horses, you can um, definitely have some, you know, lucrative plays that you uh, that you'll put in. Now, the one negative I had with Rather Nosy was the fact that she had been at the level for so many races, and then when you look at her lifetime, two wins, four seconds, seven thirds, just always seemed like a type to be underneath. And I think I've asked you probably this in the last podcast as well. If, if there's a certain amount of races you see at a certain level, when you finally tend to just think she's the proven loser there, until she gets a drop in class, she's going to be ineffective. You know, Spencer, this is so funny because I think you and I talked about this the mm-hmm. last time that I was on. I don't remember the horse's name, but uh, I think I had a different opinion. I, I tend to um, give horses maybe a few more chances than you. Um, and it, it's funny to, to hear somebody else's take on it as well. But I, I see your point on that. But at the same time, I just think this is where she fits. And line by line, I think you can go through and kind of see a bit of an understanding here. Yes, two back. She was in an allowance optional claiming level, same as what you find here. But it was a mile and a 16th. And that little extra bit of distance, especially for an inefficient mover, I think makes a big difference. She finished third, beaten by eight lengths, fine. The time before that, if you look at her, she never was able to make the lead. And she finished eighth. It was going six and a half furlongs at this same level. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing to understand for a horse like this is that she seems to be a need-the-lead type. You go back, you look at her her races, she's absolutely a horse that if she gets out there in front, she performs well. If she does not, she throws in the towel. And you mentioned track before. I don't know about you, but when I ran track, if you pass me, go on with your bad self. I mean, that's that's pretty much how I was 100%. I was like, oh, you're going to run really, really fast, like sub five-minute mile? Cool, bro. You do you. Not, yeah, not even exactly. close to that. So I think if we think of that and we take that into our understanding with horses as well, it makes a lot of sense. It does. <laughs> um, the horse that I was going to possibly bet, and then I just totally shanked it and just didn't decide to – I decided to pass the race was Road Rager. I just – dropping out of a grade two, the race is – two and four back didn't seem too strong for the level. And that kind of confused me. And then trying to get the seven furlongs, I just didn't know if this was a horse I could do it coming out of a race, like seven furlongs grade two, but with that slow pace and just seemed to give it up. I was kind of like unsure of myself. So I just really didn't end up doing anything in this race. What did you do from a wagering perspective? Um, I had played the pick five 
in mm. here. And um, so I had the two and the one uh, included in this. And I believe I had an exacta with those two horses as well because I, I didn't have any other notes on uh, additional horses to include. I, I was trying to beat the Morning Line favorite internal endeavor. And I thought, well, if these two horses can do it for me here, uh, we might be able to be successful. Let's see if Megan can get her exacta and start of the pick five, start well, or if I was a donkey by not betting Road Rager right now. And they're off. Road Rager is sent out from the inside. Pink Scadillac is up close in the early stages, and in between them, Rather Nosy. Rather Nosy now takes the lead up onto the main track. Road Rager in second with Pink Scadillac third. Eternal Endeavor is fourth, about four lengths off the lead, and she's a dime inside of her. Down the back stretch they go. And the leader is now Road Rager over Rather Nosy. They'll arrive at the half mile pole together as one. Pink Scadillac is in third. Eternal Endeavor in between horses, moving up willingly now to be a joint third, and she's a dime. They take closer order heading to the three eighth pole. Road Rager leads it by a half length to Rather Nosy in second. Eternal Endeavor coming after them right behind, just waiting for room in third. Pink Scadillac has lost some ground in fourth, has three lengths to make up, and she's a dime at the back of the field. Road Rager, rather nosy, head and head at the top of the stretch. Eternal Endeavor swings out to try to run them down as they come to the eighth pole. Road Rager digging in, rather nosy, their nose and nose. Eternal Endeavor has a clear shot, two behind. Road Rager, very tough on the front end. Eternal Endeavor on the outside. Road Rager digging in gamely, though. And it's Road Rager, rather nosy. Road Rager all the way. Wins it by a head. Rather nosy was second. Eternal Endeavor third. She's a dime a distant fourth. And the number one Road Rager does get it done, paying seventeen twenty with a seventy nine buyer. Boy, was that a dumb mistake on my part to not play the source. <laughs> you know, I almost did not as well just because of my uh, perfectionist viewpoint. But glad I included it nonetheless. Like I said, uh, if you were just went line by line, you know, you could make some valid excuses for this filly if you were kind enough to do so. So uh, I don't know. I guess it worked out for me this time, although I feel like I get taken advantage of more than more often than not with that. <laughs> well, and the fact is how we had talked, you know, rather nosy for me was a complete toss, just loses by a neck. And sometimes I think that's what it comes down to, to having a winning day. You have a 760 winner compared to a 180 favorite. And if the neck goes either way, it's it becomes either a good day for you or, you, or just another loss. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and something that I think is really important in there too. And, you know, it's why I wanted to mention it with the, the workout notes. Uh, again, I still stand by what I say about the one road ranger and the horse's stride. I mean, if you watch carefully, it is a very turfy stride still. Doesn't matter, seems to work on dirt. But what I will say about uh, that's the one road ranger, but the, the two rather nosy was able to uh, to sit off the pace. And what I think is important about that is, is yes, the silly had done it before if you look at her, her um, running lines, but a lot of the time she looked uncomfortable doing so. And I really have liked the way that Abel Cedillo has been able to be on her and uh, and really get along well with her. She seems like one of those fillies that maybe is just a little bit zappy. And uh, I think that his kind hands really made a big difference for her. And, and Fabian Pratt got along well with this horse too. Um, but she's just one of those that, what she showed in the morning and her maturing and, and getting stronger and being able to just relax a little bit and take a breath really came through for her in the afternoons. And, and if you can understand that development and note it, it's important. 
I know we talked about the five horse field earlier. The dollar exacta for Road Rager and rather knows he paid twenty three fifty. So for such a short field and nice exacta when you do get the price horse on top of the favorite. Yeah. We got lucky by a neck. <laughs> well, lucky by a neck. But that's what now when you're playing exactas, do you tend to box or do you tend to play them straight? Because I know that people tell, you know, don't play three horse boxes, you're losing so much equity. For the beginning player, yeah. that's fine until they understand the bet. Once they understand the bet though, it is kind of good to go back and, you know, start to wager differently. I, I agree. I actually had a, a fairly new horse player that um, had been tuning into the Barstool uh, broadcast, I guess, um, recently. And he reached out to me on Twitter and, and had that conversation with me about, you know, what's the best way for me to start out. And, and I do recommend that for the very early horse player is if you like three horses, if you can find your top three favorites, usually it's, you know, the top two in the wagering that maybe a horse at a little bit more of a price. Um, fine, play them in a small exact box, those three, because I think you kind of have to create that excitement. Um, and more often than not, you, you give yourself a lot of coverage there, you, you might just get it done. So um, I think that's a good play for the early horse player. But I do agree with you that you do lose a lot of equity in it. And I, I try to just box two horses. Um, I think I, I probably play that more often than not, rather than just a straight exacta. I know I should say I play a straight exacta more, but uh, unless I've got a real, real, real strong feeling about the horse, I, I, I usually find I enjoy that insurance policy a little bit. And people definitely have their favorite bets. And, you know, like we've talked with keeping, you know, track of wagering, if you can show me you've done 100 races and you have a pro- positive ROI, then nobody can say anything to you if, if you're playing four-horse boxes. But then again, playing four-horse boxes, is very hard to keep that positive ROI because you have to be very selective in the, in the races you're picking. Agreed. Agreed. And it all depends on the, the makeup of the race. I mean, you know, these shorter fields like this, you might be able to, to take a bit of a stand and, and not box it. Um, but in the races that have really big fields, it's just too much can happen. You know, you got to give yourself the, the chance to, I guess, win the most you can or, or at a better rate. Let us change our tack to the Midwest. We're going to also change dates. This is race number six. It is a six furlong maiden, 20,000 clamor going six furlongs on the dirt. What were your thoughts on this race, Megan? Ah, back to my old Kentucky home. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I've been excited to watch the, the racing at Churchill. I do miss being there quite a bit. Um, I believe the race, it was, uh, yeah, race number six at Churchill, maiden 20 on the, the six furlongs on the dirt. It was the start of the, the pick five there. But, you know, that was one where I think you could make a case for a couple of horses. I thought Annie's Golden Girl watching the broadcast physically looked very, very good. Ignacio Correas can get horses uh, to the finish line first time out. And the workouts had seemed really good from Keeneland. Um, so I, I had that horse in there. I also gave a chance to the seven American values for Ben Colebrook. Uh, I think he's an excellent trainer and excellent guy as well. He had two in there actually American values and ready to play one at 12 to one and one at six to one respectively. Uh, and the 11 horse every single day for Tom Amos was the one that was the morning line favorite. This is a race that I did spread in. And honestly, it was kind of a last minute ad for me um, because you're talking about low level meeting claimers. And I, I felt like there was a horse in here that we needed to, to really look at. So last minute, I gave a good look to the 10, Whoville, for Brian Williamson, who's only a, well, he's off to a hot start, I guess, uh, at Churchill, 12%, but he only wins at 4% on the year for 2020. Mitchell Merle, 9%. So connections, maybe not as strong, but what I felt was important with this filly, and what I think is important with some of these lower-level claiming races, and especially maiden claiming races, 
is understanding class, understanding the condition book. If you can do that, it, it takes away so many questions in your handicap and there may be even so many oversights. And for Whoville, this is a horse that was dropping to the lowest level of her career in quite some time. She's a racing maiden special way to Hawthorne. I didn't love that she started off there. But then she goes to Oakland to race as maiden 50, which is tough at Oakland. I mean, and again, that was a 12-4 field. Comes back another 12-4 field, maiden 25. She finishes fourth. They bumped her up to the maiden 40, bumped her up again to the maiden 50, which is not bottom of the barrel at Oakland Park. And now they come here to Churchill Downs and drop her all the way down. So I felt like this was a horse that, again, had just been overmatched in so many of her spots and she looked like she was sharp with her workouts coming into here. Uh, but it was really the class that was important to me where some horses, even the, the 11 every single day, last time ran at Oakland for maiden 16 and didn't perform well. So when you, when you look at where these horses were coming from, who they faced, how many they faced, in my opinion, the 10 was getting the most class relief out of anybody else in here. Well, let's talk about the condition book a little bit too. Obviously I'm not expecting everyone who's not a trainer to, like know the condition book in and out, but knowing that, you know, a horse that's shipping in from the bottom of another track and shipping to the bottom here, it's still really the bottom. People talk about uh, Tampa is a, a track that they don't like seeing the form come out of to Churchill. The bottom at Tampa is still the same. Maybe the horses are a tad bit better, but they're still the worst type of horses on the grounds at Churchill. So when I see a horse like this taking the big drop, it just seemed to me and the nice little blowout workout in 37 flat and I love the fact that you brought up the 4% overall trainer, 12% here. He's off to a decent start. You know, he's got three horses hitting the board out of eight. For a 4% trainer, that t- tends to tell me that the horse is going to, the trainer is going to have a hot start to the meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, I, I think, like you said, you don't necessarily have to know in and out of the condition book, you know, what races were available at what time or whatever, but understanding you know, the bottom, the top of different levels is really important. If you can, I've actually thought about, maybe it's a passion project probably, but, uh, you know, kind of creating some sort of spreadsheet that compares tracks and where their levels are. And so you can make that jump a little bit easier. Because I find that on TVG, it's difficult for me when you're, tra- when you're covering so many different tracks on a daily basis that you maybe don't follow all the time. I, I don't feel comfortable on some, and I, I try to do my research to make up for that um, when I have a question about it to say, well, this is a class drop. Is it really? Do you know that for a fact, or is it a lateral move? And that can make a big difference in your handicapping, and, and that's not always a tool that's, uh, well, it's not a tool that's really available so much. So um, I, I think that information, if you can dig for it, you can find it. The condition books are available for you online to, to look at on Equibase or on the tracks themselves. Um, that education for tracks you follow very closely or circuits is really important. I know uh, John Camaro is a very big data guy that I know PTF uses a lot. Uh, Marshall Sterling, the G1 handicapper, the weatherman for all the degenerates out there on horse racing Twitter is also a big data guy. So maybe we'll have to reach out to one of those two guys and ask around and see what they think about that little uh, startup product. They can probably help along with it. True. A horse or maybe I- they've done already and i don't have to do it <laughs> <laughs> right exactly uh, a horse that i tended to like a little bit here was a uh, azalin's dreamer uh for prescott and uh randy matthew it looked like he was at the bottom in oakland i think 12.5 is the bottom but just the fact when horses at the bottom can hang on with a hot pace like that was say the time form uh first fraction shows up in red so it was a hot pace for the level i like horses that can finish the horse ran second as have been improving buyers the whole time and now got a little bit of a break and I just seem like this horse could possibly jump up 
and make something happen in a race at the bottom when it's hard to take favorites and it's hard to take a short price. You should be looking for that mid-value horse to kind of spice up your exotics for sure. Yeah, you have to try to find that value where you can. The 11, who I believe was a morning line favorite, four for nine in the money for James Graham and Tom Amos. It just seemed like after they had gotten the horse three back for 30,000, that this horse was just kind of on the perpetual uh, ladder down to the depths. And when mm-hmm. you start seeing multiple drops in a row, it kind of just seems like not quote unquote damaged goods, but just a horse that is not in the right form at all. Well, and it's also trying to find, you know, the right spot for this horse too, not just this class, but mm-hmm. if you look, I mean, I, I tend to call these horses a, like pasta, you know, you throw it against the wall, see what sticks. And, and you've gone long on the turf, short on the turf, you know, at fairgrounds then switching over to Oakland and trying the, the dirt course going short there. So there was a lot of changes happening with this horse and, and a lot of changes happening with class too, like you said, moving down. So um, it, that to me is kind of indicative of, of maybe we haven't figured out what she wants to do yet. And, you know, to be fair, Tom Amos only claimed her back a couple of races ago and he's an excellent trainer at figuring out where they want to be. But that inconsistency, I agree with you. You have to be a little wary of that. What did you end up doing from a wagering spot in here, Megan? Uh, this was the start of the pick five. So, like I said, I did end up spreading in this one quite a bit with uh, with a few horses. But I, I, Whoville was the one that at the last second I thought, you know, uh, people always ask me that question. And you have to kind of check yourself, too, as a, as a public handicapper. What do I always tell people to do when they ask me, especially beginners? What, what's the first thing you look at is a lot of. Uh, you know, I get that question a lot and I always tell people it is class number one, uh, you know, distance of the race surface, of course, uh, and, um, and any kind of trip lines, um, that you can, that you can figure out. So, uh, in that I had to stand by my own handicapping rules and, and look at class. And when it, when it came down to that, I, I felt like distance Billy was just getting the biggest class relief. She'd come out of the toughest races, albeit yes, she was overmatched. Um, but when I looked at the experience that she had had over a few first-time starters and horses that had raced and not performed well at lower levels, she made some sense to me. And, and at least on the morning line, she did take a little bit of action. But on the morning line, when I handicapped, she was 10 to 1. So I thought a big class dropper at 10 to 1, I would be remiss if I did not include her. Let's see if Whoville can get it started for Megan here. I am on Aslan Streamer. I just did a little win place show across the board. Let's see if we can get it done here in the 6th. At Churchill right now. And they're off. Worth a pretty penny mid-pack. American Values is there. Miss Eddie's hustled through toward the inside. Eddie's Golden Girl right up there, too. Four of them across the track. Whoville comes away chasing while fifth and in the clear slaunch of sixth. Every single day is seven. Zippy Kaye moving up from eighth. Ready to play, advancing in between from ninth. Aslan Streamers back at a tenth by four. Kavatica's racing 11th by five. My bets is at the back and under pressure, racing for the far turn. There's four furlongs to go, and Annie's Golden Girl has come on through to take charge. Annie's Golden Girl onto the far turn in front. Worth a pretty penny right there. American Values three wide, and Whoville four wide. Three, now four across the track with two and a half furlongs to go. Meanwhile, every single day is right in behind, and Slanch is there, too. Farther back, Zippy Kaye finds a seaman, comes up. Kavatica 
made up some ground on the far turn as well. They're off the turn. Whoville comes away with the lead. The leader by two. Slancha second. Down inside every single day. Kavatica continues to close. Here comes Kavatica down the side of the track. There's one for long to go. Whoville desperately trying to hold. Kavatica is there. Slancha outside. My bets is late on the scene. 50 yards left. Whoville's desperate for the wire in front nonetheless. And Whoville won. And the number 10, Whoville gets it done paying 12.20, low 49 buyer, but when you're at the bottom of the barrel, you can't be expecting those 90 buyers. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not as concerned with maybe the number that comes out of it. Uh, like you said, you do have to understand what you're working with. So it was uh, a good race, I thought, for, for a horse that I wasn't sure what we were going to get out of her, but I was hoping for that price. So it was um, a pleasant, pleasant surprise. I certainly was excited watching that race. I should have had a, a GoPro on me while I was watching the racing at Churchill Downs. <laughs> huh. It would be like uh, Edgar Martinez when watching King Guillermo a couple of weeks ago jumping over the uh, jumping over the couch when his horse won the Tampa Derby. <laughs> yeah, I think he might be a little bit more athletic than me in that sense, but uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, he has been out of the league for a couple of years. Uh, Aslan's Dreamer, I think, just got just not the right level. I think that I just kind of maybe made the mistake of thinking that even though it was a 12-5, the fast pace, this horse just didn't really do anything in this race, finishing dead last. Uh, one of the favorites, Annie's Golden Girl, also finishing 13 buyer first time out. Just when you look at this type of race, I feel like there's not much that you can like deconstruct from it. You just kind of take what you what you think is best to know and just don't if there's something that's like 50 50 you just kind of toss it out until you see something different yeah yeah i mean you know just watching this race back it's interesting to me um the horse i had mentioned before and the first time starter did take a lot of action there annie's golden girl actually went from eight to one on the morning line to end up at um five to two and she had a tough trip to her she's a horse that i would put an asterisk next to excuse me and um <clears throat> and watch for next time because she had to be in behind horses. She looked like she might have gotten there a little tight. And I actually think Rafael Bejarano moved on her um, just a little bit early, but it was not necessarily, it was really because he had to, you know, she was uncomfortable. She was very keen in behind horses and she's still learning at that. So he, he is able to, you know, kind of get her to the lead and let her have some clear running. But um, in my opinion, she did look like she was still learning a lot. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, the uh, here comes the 10 horse flying around the turn with Mitchell Murrow without even moving a muscle. And that was ultra impressive to me as they started on the on the, uh, the turn coming into the stretch. And, and he really didn't have to touch this horse at all. So it was a smart ride by Mitchell to not fight with this horse. Um, she was a filly that obviously had a lot coming into this. And in fact, he was able to get her to settle well off of the pace um she had been a horse that had been a little closer at some points in her career but she sat off there saved all the ground in the world uh and was able to get the best trip of them all and, and that doesn't always work out too you do have to measure how much horse you have i mean i think that same day was when gunnett ran uh in one of the stakes races or maybe it was a stake later on with uh, joel rosario who moved way too soon on that big churchill downs course so you know it's it's not apples to apples um as far as when to make that move and and Whoville, just Mitchell Merle did an excellent job of figuring out exactly how much he had. Now, for the beginning player, obviously, you and me have watched hundreds and hundreds of races. Like, when you say, like, watching the jockey move and watching their hands, I, I, I get a lot of friends who are like, how do you know when the horse is moving or if he's emptier? It's, and for me, it's always been the jockey's hands. And I kind mm -hmm. of, you know, watch every single rider's hands, and I can kind of tell when they're going to make their move. Is that pretty much what you do as well? Yeah, um, I think that, 
you know, you, you want to take a look at how fast the horse is moving and how fast the rider is moving together, because that's really where you, you can get the best understanding. I mean, most of the time uh, we're holding horses back from doing their, mm-hmm. their running. And that's in, you know, workouts a lot of the time and, uh, and in races for the majority of these horses, when they are out there on the track running, we are holding them back. And that's what I always try to tell people too, that say these horses don't want to run us you know, as a, somebody who gallops myself a little bit, like you try to tell that horse not to go as fast as it possibly can at all times. I mean, it's quite the workout. So, you know, a lot of times these riders are, are holding these horses. They've got some shorter reins on them. They've got a tight hold. Um, but what's important is to see, is that horse traveling well and comfortably and accelerating without the rider pumping their arms? Um, and that's really important. And, and, if you go back and you watch this race, Whoville is a perfect example of it. It's on the outside, so you have a bit of a limited view. But all of a sudden, I mean, this horse just stepped up and said, I've got a lot more left to give. And Mitchell could understand that the horse was comfortable to do it on its own. So his hands are not moving at all. In fact, he's, he's even holding the horse a little bit still uh, while she is accelerating. And that's what we call, you know, moving through the bridle and, and showing a lot of propulsion on the hind end. So it's a, a really important thing. I think the most historic move. Well, not maybe most historic, but at least in my mind, one of the best examples of that as well is Beholder, you know, in the mm-hmm. classic Gary didn't even move on that horse. And she just did it well within herself and, and trying to find that when you're watching race replays or even workouts as well. Uh, horses that are accelerating under a hold or want to do more or are moving so comfortably. Those are horses that you want to continue to play and, and hopefully can, you know, see that before the race and, and make a profit off of them. We talk about being on a horse. I've been on a horse twice in my life. The last time was a special gift for my girlfriend, and I can barely stop the horse from, you know, kneeling down to get some grass, let alone get him to move in the right direction. <laughs> so definitely stuff to look forward to looking at races, old races like Beholder and that Pacific Classic. Megan, I can't thank enough for all the time you've spent with me. Uh, second time on the show. Glad to have you on again. Hope to have you on again soon. Where can people find you on social media and in doing the stuff like the happy hour and possibly barstool again this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I always have a great time. Uh, I think it's, it's funny when you say, uh, you know, before we start the show, you always tell me, yeah, we'll probably talk for about 30 minutes, but I know if you and I will likely go for an hour. Absolutely. I mean, that's what it always <laughs> ends up being. Just because we're, uh, we're having fun, but, uh, but no, I really appreciate it. And I think it's important to go back and, and look at these races. And I, I really like that your show does that. And, and um, it makes me a better handicapper. So I always appreciate the, the opportunity to do so. As far as social media goes, um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Megan Divine TV is where you can find me. And uh, my company, like I said, if anybody's interested in uh, photography, videography, and marketing services for horses or not, uh, is Vidhorse, at Vidhorse, one word, on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And then, yeah, the Horse Racing Happy Hour, we're just getting started. We're super excited about it, but is at Happy Hour, or I'm sorry, at Horse Happy Hour um, on Twitter. And uh, and I'm looking forward to, to continuing to grow that. We have an Instagram page, too, and that is Horse Racing Happy Hour. Got to get that right. So we're, <laughs> we're working on it. We're growing it. But uh, always available, always happy to talk with people. And, and I really appreciate your show being you know, open to listeners um, that are experienced horse players and those that are not. And, and I want to encourage people if they ever have any questions about anything with handicapping or, or want to talk through something um, to reach out to me. And, and I'm always more than happy to, to talk to anybody that wants to be a better handicapper or, or maybe teach me something or uh, just become a fan of the sport. Thanks so much, Megan. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Spencer. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show and my special guest, Megan Devine. 
This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornitale. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. Nowhere to hide from my-